Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Paul Cahan, author of Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. Paul Cahan, author of Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. What possessed you to write a biography of Simon Cameron? Well, thanks again for having me on the show. I'm glad to be back. I just, you know, found Cameron to be a fascinating character. Uh, when Doris Kearns Goodwin's book came out a couple of years ago, uh, she had nothing nice to say about Cameron. And so I thought, God, you know, there's got to be more to this guy. He was from Pennsylvania. My research interests are Pennsylvania history. So I started researching him, and I found that there was only one full-length biography. It was 50 years old, and I thought, his time has come. What did you learn about him when you were doing the biography? Well, so Cameron, for anyone who's interested in Civil War history, knows that Cameron has this sort of outsized reputation for corruption and for misbehavior. And, you know, to a certain extent, there's some truth to that, but if you read the book, you find that actually there was a lot more to Cameron than his reputation suggests. He was never as corrupt as people believed. Uh, he was sort of a victim of political partisanship. But more than that, there's a human being behind that story. You know, this was a guy who deeply loved his wife, deeply loved his family, and was shockingly loyal, even when being so uh, was not in his political interests. What was it he did that caused people to think he was corrupt? Oh, well, so, you know, he was reputed to have stolen a number of elections through bribery, through uh, all kinds of uh, different forms of malfeasance. He was reputed to have cheated Native Americans out of their um, money uh, in the 1830s. He was reputed to be, uh, you know, uh, selling uh, generalships during the war. I mean, there were all kinds of really outrageous stories, but if you dig down into each of those stories, at every single one of these, you know, really shocking episodes of malfeasance, there's political partisanship at work. And so the reality was never as awful as his critics made it out to be. Did you like him more after you were done the book than you did when you started out? Well, I called the book Amiable Scoundrel, uh, and I think there is no doubt that Cameron was a scoundrel, certainly by today's um, standards, but he's also incredibly amiable, and I did find that uh, he and I have some things in common. This was a man who drank a quart of champagne a day. Now, I don't drink a quart, but I, I, I do enjoy a, a glass of uh, champagne. Uh, he's an incredibly likable guy. He was an incredibly engaging person, as all politicians are. But ultimately, uh, yeah, I, I think that I came out having a much better appreciation of him as a person, having written the book. For people who know nothing about him, first of all, when is his era? So Cameron is born in 1799, and he dies in 1889. So he spans really the moment of American history when the Founding Fathers are sort of moving off the scene all the way up to the beginnings of the Progressive Era. So when you talk about the 19th century, this is a guy who is at most of the important moments of the 19th century from about 1820 forward. 
Uh, he's a senator in three distinct periods from 1845 to 1849, 1857 to 1861, and then again from 1867 through 1877. So he's got a hand in the Mexican-American War, he's got a hand in the lead up to Lincoln's presidency, and he's got a hand in Reconstruction. All these incredibly important political moments in the 19th century, Cameron is standing just off center stage. Born in Lancaster County? Yeah, so he's born in Lancaster County. Um, he's primarily associated with Harrisburg. He buys the uh, John, um, John Smith, Harris. No, John Harris, thank you, mansion, right on Front Street in Harrisburg. It's now home to the Historical Society of Dauphin County. And he is a mover and shaker uh, in Harrisburg and in Washington from really about the 1830s forward up until his death. Even though he had been retired for more than a decade, he was still sort of the sage of Pennsylvania politics. How did he get himself from being born in Lancaster to being so influential being at so many key points? So that's a really interesting story and it's in a lot of ways his rise to power almost parallels Abraham Lincoln. These guys are born incredibly poor, uh, without any of you know the sort of uh, privileges that we might expect, education, wealth, etc. What Cameron does is, early on, he apprentices himself in the newspaper industry. He apprentices himself to a printer, much like Benjamin Franklin a century before. And newspapers are really at the center of politics. As we're getting into the 18-teens and 1820s, we're seeing the growth of the number of newspapers. They're becoming more partisan, really as a way to distinguish themselves from one another. And so for someone who's interested in politics and who's interested in economic advancement, the newspaper industry offers both. And he comes to the attention of Samuel Ingham, who is one of the leading lights of a political faction in Pennsylvania known as the Family Party. Uh, Ingham sort of adopts Cameron as uh, the lead, his, his mouthpiece. He sets him up in a newspaper in Doylestown. And really, Cameron builds his rise to wealth on the newspaper industry, but really on being uh, the mouthpiece, the organ of um, political factions. Because, you know, guys like Ingham would support these newspapers by directing state printing contracts toward them. And so patronage early on becomes one of the key steps to Cameron building his wealth. Then he gets involved in the railroads, he gets involved in canal building, and so by the time we get to the 1830s, he's able to retire more or less from business and focus on his true passion, which is politics. Was the family party a political party? It was. So after, when we get to the 18-teens, we see the creation of what's called the era of good feelings. And that really means that there is one political party dominating U.S. politics. That's Jefferson's Democratic-Republicans. Um, but within that party, of course, you have factions. And in Pennsylvania, one of those factions was the Family Party, headquartered here in Philadelphia. It was uh, run by guys like Samuel Ingham, the Dallas family. Uh, A.J. Dallas becomes Polk's um, vice president. And so they were sort of vying. Not there wasn't really a difference between them and the other factions of this party. The struggle was over patronage. The struggle was over state jobs. And so that really becomes uh, the ground that the various factions fight about in the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s. He had his eye on politics all along? Uh, I, when he's a kid, he's interested in it. 
but it's really when he apprentices himself uh, in, to the newspaper in, the, in his early teens that he becomes sort of a political animal. And, you know, late in life he talks about how he would go to um, the state legislature sessions. He knew most of the senators, most of the congressmen. So this was a kid who, you know, by the time most of us are in our sophomore year of high school, had a really, really focused interest in Pennsylvania politics, seeing it as a stepping stone to wealth and power. Did he have strong political opinions? So Cameron, you know, one of the interesting things about Cameron is Cameron proved very, very flexible. There are very few issues about which Cameron feels particularly strongly. He always sees himself as doing what's in Pennsylvania's interest. He always sees himself as a good Pennsylvanian. And so from that perspective, one of the things that's very important to him is the tariff. Now, the tariff is not one of these sexy political issues that historians write a lot about. Basically, it's a tax that's put on items that are imported into the United States. Cameron was a dyed-in-the-wool supporter of tariffs, in part because Pennsylvania was an industrializing state. And tariffs, by raising the price of imports, provided protection for Pennsylvania's industries. But Cameron was also an industrialist himself. He had iron interests. He was involved in the railroad. He was involved in canal building. These were industries that patronized um, state production, mostly steel, iron production, etc. So by supporting the tariff, he was also protecting his own business interests. Another really interesting finding in the book is that Cameron has very, very progressive views on race and slavery. Early in his career, Cameron is what we would call a conservative. He opposes slavery personally, but doesn't want to interfere with it where it already exists. But there are numerous instances where, on a personal level, Cameron reaches out toward African Americans. Um, he meets an indigent African American in the 1840s. He ends up uh, paying for this person to go to college. Um, he ends up setting him up in business. Um, on a personal level, he's not a racist. And when he returns to the Senate in the 1860s, one of the big issues is, of course, Reconstruction. What does the war mean? Are we going to provide civil rights for African Americans? And Cameron becomes a leader in the fight to provide African Americans with the vote. So he has very, very progressive views on race, even though on issues of slavery, he's content to let it, let sleeping dogs lie. South Carolina wants to have slavery, great. It's not up to us to do anything about it. When he was Secretary of War during the Civil War, he favored uh, arming African Americans. Yes, and this is actually what brings him into conflict with uh, the Lincoln administration. So, you know, one of the great myths about Simon Cameron is that Lincoln finally fires him because he's too corrupt. But as I show in two chapters of the book, in reality, there's far less corruption in the War Department than there is at the Treasury Department and in the Postmaster General's office. And that from the beginning of the war, Cameron is saying to the Lincoln administration, we should arm African Americans, we should enlist African Americans, let's bring them into the fight. Seeing it as he does as a fight against slavery. Um, by December of 1861, Cameron is increasingly saying this publicly, and when he does that, it brings him into conflict with the president, and within a few weeks, he's booted from the administration. Uh, can you talk about his Senate race and how you became uh, elected to the Senate back sure. then? Sure. So nowadays we elect senators directly. You, me, we go to the polls, we vote for senators. But in the 19th century, that's not how this was done. Because the Senate was supposed to represent the interests of the state rather than the voters, the state legislatures 
selected who would be in the Senate. So what you basically did is if you wanted to be senator was you had to go to the legislature and corral, log roll, the various members into voting for you. And of course there were typically party line votes, but even um, within the parties, there was a great deal of factionalism and fighting for who would get to be in the Senate. And the reason was because on the federal level, senators controlled a great deal of patronage. The president distributed patronage, but one of the, from very early on, the Senate um, sort of asserts its authority in sort of directing the president. And so even today, when the president names, when the president appoints someone from a particular state, he normally, he or she normally consults with the senators from those states, particularly if the senators from those states are members of his or her party. In the 19th century, that relationship was even stronger. And in fact, when Ulysses S. Grant neglected to do that uh, as president, uh, Cameron was among the most aggressive in sort of disciplining the president. There are a number of instances where early in Grant's presidency where Cameron uses his power to sort of administer a slap on the wrist to President Grant. When did he decide he wanted to be a senator? So he decides he wants to be a senator uh, in the early 1840s. And once James K. Polk is elected president, uh, in order to satisfy Pennsylvania's various factions, Polk selects A.J. Dallas, the member of the family party, to be his vice president, but then nominates James Buchanan, who is not a member of this family party, who has his own little faction, to be secretary of state. At the moment, Buchanan was serving as senator, so when he vacated his seat, the Pennsylvania legislature had to choose someone to replace him. Cameron throws his hat in the ring. And he and, he and Buchanan were incredibly close friends. He had been sort of the behind-the-scenes guy advancing Buchanan's political career during the 1830s and early 1840s. And so here he is in middle age and decides to sort of step out on the national stage by becoming the senator from Pennsylvania. So uh, how did he, oh, oh, well, he was elected senator. He and was. And immediately there were charges of corruption. There were. Now, was that unusual or was that just the way elections were done then? Well, so, you know, the Jacksonian period had sort of altered elections. And the, the, Jacksons, the Jacksonians had been very proud about the fact that when elected, they would distribute the patronage. Uh, William L. Marcy, who was a New York politician, summed it up best when he said, to the victor go the spoils. And so from about 1828 forward, national and state elections really become about winning office so that you can cement your following through the distribution of state contracts, state jobs, etc. And so as a result, these sort of factional struggles for Senate positions, which offered incredibly lucrative federal contracts, federal jobs, etc., become very, very aggressive. And so, you know, what happens in Pennsylvania is not unusual. Cameron's problem is he had this sort of pre-existing reputation for corruption. And so anytime someone got up and, and accused him of corruption, it fed into that pre-existing narrative. And the story on that goes back to the 1830s, when um, uh, Martin Van Buren becomes president, uh, he appoints Simon Cameron as, a, as an adjuster to settle the terms of a treaty the United States had concluded with the Winnebago uh, Nation of Native Americans. And under the terms of this treaty, the Winnebagos were supposed to be um, reimbursed for the land and their debts to certain merchants were supposed to be adjudicated. Not a very sexy job. But Cameron and his co-adjudicator get in a wagon and they go out to what's today Wisconsin to settle these claims. 
And there's all kinds of problems with the claims. The federal government doesn't send the money to pay the claims. Um, the army officer who's out there takes an immediate dislike to Cameron. And so Cameron and his co-adjudicator sort of read their instructions sort of very loosely. And his political enemies see this as evidence of corruption. They claim that he makes all this money. They claim that he's cheating the Native Americans. Not that they really cared about the Native Americans, but they claim that he's cheating the Native Americans. And Cameron gets this name, the Great Winnebago Chief, that sort of follows him throughout his career. And so at these other instances where there are sort of these partisan claims about his alleged corruption, they fit into this pre-existing narrative and therefore they stick to him more than they would to other politicians. So where there's smoke, there's fire? I mean, was he totally innocent in all no, this stuff? No, he's not totally innocent. But, you know, one of the things that I remind viewer, uh, readers of the book is you've got to take yourself out of the 21st century. We live in a post-civil service reform political environment. In the 19th century, the ethics rules were much looser. There was no civil service. The Jacksonian, you know, sort of, you get elected to give out the spoils was accepted. The Whigs did it. The Democrats did it. You know, one of the reasons why the Republicans want to get elected is so that they can give out the spoils. So, you know, yeah, it's easy to look back on that and say, good God, this is so corrupt. And to our sensibilities, it is. The difference is Cameron wasn't the only one, and he wasn't even the worst one. Lincoln was doing these things. Mary Todd Lincoln was doing these things. Uh, Seward was doing these things. Chase was doing these things. And in a lot of cases, the things they were doing were even worse. So on the one hand, yes, we should do this to Cameron's actions, but we should also put them in context. One of the jobs you have him handing out as patronage is... Um a seat on the Canal Commission. Yes. Which does not sound like a big sexy thing. No. But was it then? It was because, of course, you know, so New York completes the Erie Canal, and that's a game changer. New York City goes from sort of this slowly growing, sleepy backwater in Philadelphia's shadow to within 20 years becoming the leading financial city in the United States, in large part because it's now possible to get goods, goods and finished and raw materials from the hinterlands into Manhattan and then out into the larger world. So Philadelphia early, or Pennsylvania early on, in order to compete, wants to build its own canal. And this is a massive undertaking. There's a massive amount of money flowing through the canal board. They're going to be responsible for picking the people who are actually going to do the work. They're going to be responsible for um, giving out the contracts. They're going to be responsible for overseeing the operation of the canal. So it is a massive, massive amount of money that's flowing through this. And with that money and with those jobs and with that patronage, you can build a network of supporters to then move on to increasingly important and higher profile political jobs. So this, you know, it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't sound sexy, but it, this is the grist from which political careers are made. So how do you do as a senator? Um, you know, I think he defended what he saw as Pennsylvania's interests. And there are some genuine moments of enlightened forward thinking. It's really in his last term as senator that he ascends to the most prestigious committee chair in the Senate. Uh, he becomes the chair of the Committee on Foreign Relations. And it's in that position that he works with Hamilton Fish, who is um, Grant's Secretary of State, to really advance national interest. Um, Hamilton Fish is routinely regarded as among the best American secretaries of state. And the Grant administration, for all its knocks, has a foreign policy that in many ways is quite good. 
Um, and Cameron plays a small but not inconsequential role in that. And, you know, Hamilton Fish recognizes the role that he plays. He thanks him for, you know, being dependable for the administration. Um, but Cameron's modus operandi is not on the Senate floor. He's a wheeler dealer. He's the guy that, you know, keeps the machinery of government rolling. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous. But without him, Reconstruction would have ground to a stop. Without guys like him, the mechanisms of government would have ground to a stop. So it's sort of like, you know, West Wing uh, in the 19th century. How important was Pennsylvania at the time? Pennsylvania was crucial. Pennsylvania in the 19th century has the second highest number of uh, electoral votes. It is evenly matched between Democrats and Whigs and then between Republicans and Democrats in the years after the war. So it is incredibly crucial. Uh, I think I looked this up, and I'm not sure what the years are, but at least in the antebellum period, Pennsylvania always selects the person who becomes president. So, um, you know, if it goes Whig, you can be pretty well sure the Whig's going to be president. If it goes Democrat, you can be pretty well sure it's going to go Democrat. So Pennsylvania is an incredibly important state and making the senator from Pennsylvania incredibly important. And it's one of the reasons why Lincoln ultimately selects Cameron to be a secretary of war. Um, at the Republican convention in 1860, he needs Cameron's delegates to get the, to get the nomination. And then having been elected, he now needs to sort of keep Pennsylvania in the fold. So that makes Simon Cameron the best candidate for a cabinet position, and in this case, Secretary of War. But it also elevates the status of Pennsylvania's governor, Andrew G. Curtin, who is a committed Cameron antagonist. And their antagonism does nothing to help Cameron as War Secretary. So in this period, Pennsylvania had James Buchanan, who was Secretary of State for a time, and and Simon Cameron, who we're talking about, and uh, Henry Dallas, who was vice president, David Wilmot, who mm -hmm. comes up in your book for the Wilmot Proviso. So um, how'd they get along? Um, it depended on the political headwinds. Um, Thaddeus Stevens, who is an incredibly important uh, <coughs> member of the House of Representatives during this period, did not personally like Cameron, but he recognized the need to work with him. And so there are moments where politically it paid to work with him. There were moments where politically it paid to oppose him. David Wilmot, you know, Cameron and Wilmot could be political enemies. They could also be political friends, depending on the headwinds. And, you know, his, his, his fight with Curtin, um, the governor, is legendary and goes back to the 1850s when they're sort of both vying for control of a faction of Pennsylvania's emerging Republican Party. Cameron ultimately wins that fight and consigns Andrew Gray Curtin to being a sort of footnote in history. I mean, no one knows who Andrew G. Curtin is. Um, Cameron wins that battle. But, you know, Pennsylvania is incredibly crucial to the federal government. It's incredibly crucial on the national level. And so you're going to have these incredibly ambitious politicians fighting to control Pennsylvania's political um, future as a way of establishing themselves on the national level. And Cameron ends up, after about 30 years of fighting, coming out as the undisputed boss of Pennsylvania. Why would somebody be an ally of Simon Cameron? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is genuine principle. You believe that the federal government should spend money to improve infrastructure. You believe in a high tariff. You believe in voting rights for African Americans. Um, you know, Cameron represents those things. But on a sort of more mundane level, Cameron's success can be your success. If you're a supporter of Cameron, 
through your newspaper or through your local Republican committee or, you know, for whatever, it becomes an opportunity to advance. It can advance your career. If you want to have a state job, if you want to have a federal job, Simon Cameron's an incredibly important and useful person to know. And so, you know, I think a lot of his supporters, it was a mix of principle and doing well by doing good. You mentioned earlier James Buchanan, who became president later on, and how he and uh, Simon Cameron were close friends in the beginning and then split. Can you talk about their relationship? Sure. So, Simon, um, I'm sorry, James Buchanan was about a decade older than Simon Cameron. And he established himself during the Jacksonian during the Jackson administration as sort of uh, uh, the grand man of Pennsylvania politics. And so he ends up being appointed to be minister to Russia by Andrew Jackson, and then he comes back. And Cameron works very hard to get him elected to the Senate. And if you read their letters, it's, it's, it's clearly an unequal relationship. Cameron is sort of the young whippersnapper gopher. But there is a genuine affection there. I mean, Cameron names one of his children after James Buchanan. When the child dies, Buchanan writes him this heartfelt letter expressing his sympathies. So there is a great deal of affection and care there. And then we get to the 1840s, and of course Buchanan is a member of the Polk administration, and for a variety of reasons, Cameron finds himself consistently opposing the Polk administration. And I think that puts some strains on their friendship. And then, of course, Buchanan has this ambition to be president of the United States. And some of Buchanan's friends, most notably John Forney, who is this incredibly erratic newspaper publisher here in Philadelphia, claims that Cameron stabs Buchanan in the back at the 1848 uh, Democratic National Convention. I'm sorry, at the 1852 Democratic National Convention. And from that period forward, Buchanan sort of writes Cameron off. And that's really the worst thing that you can do, because while Cameron is incredibly loyal, he can also be extremely vindictive. And so as a result, their enmity grows and begins tearing apart the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania. And as a result, Cameron decides he's going he's gonna to emerge. He's going to be the leader. And as the issue of slavery heats that up and, and you know, really tears the party apart further, Cameron jumps first to the know-nothings and then the Republicans, and that becomes a perch by which, being elected to the Senate, he can oppose the Buchanan administration. And he is a thorn in Buchanan's side throughout Buchanan's presidency. Ironically, um, Buchanan ends up alienating Forney, and Forney becomes a Cameron supporter. And so, you know, you get a sense of how there are a lot of moving parts in Pennsylvania's politics, that the labels that people adopt for themselves are fluid, they're always sort of contingent and changing. I mean, it's a really, really interesting political environment. And, you know, it's not, the book isn't just about Cameron. It's about this moment in American politics when all of the chips were up in the air and no one was quite sure, you know, what the picture was going to look like when they landed. And Cameron was incredibly good at predicting that and planning for it. You write in the book that he started off as a Democrat, then he became a know-nothing, and then he became a Republican. But what did it mean to be a know-nothing, and how big a force were they in Pennsylvania? So that's, that's a great question. The know-nothings have this terrible reputation, particularly as we're, as we're talking about Donald Trump, who was being called a, a latter-day know-nothing. The know-nothings claim to fame. Um, was that they opposed immigration, specifically uh, Catholic immigration from Ireland. And that was sort of the platform that they ran on. 
And they had this explosive moment in the mid-1850s as the Whig and Democratic parties are sort of collapsing because of slavery. The know-nothings establish themselves as a potential alternative. But as I argue in the book, and this is something that historians have been arguing for uh, debate, have been arguing for about the last 30 years, there's more to the know-nothings than just anti-Catholicism. That's their big issue. But in a lot of ways, the know-nothings become a vehicle for anti-slave Democrats and Whigs. Because the, the, the know-nothings are sort of tacitly speaking to this issue of slavery. In fact, when Cameron gets recruited to be a know-nothing, uh, he gets this long questionnaire about you know, his political beliefs. And I think there's 12 questions on it, and only one of them deals with immigration. Most of them deal with slavery, most of them deal with the tariff. So clearly, at least in Pennsylvania, the know-nothings were much more concerned about protecting the tariff and protecting Pennsylvania's right to be non-slave than they were about immigration. Now, you know, to his discredit, Cameron, of course, you know, sort of gives this vague answer about, yeah, you know, immigrants, they're terrible, we'll do something about that. But it's his answers on slavery and the tariff, which I find most interesting, because he comes out as a strong protector, as a strong anti-slave advocate, not an abolitionist. He doesn't want to touch slavery where it exists, but he says, I am opposed to slavery, I've always been opposed to slavery, and I will protect Pennsylvania's rights against encroachment from the fugitive slave law. And so it's, you know, this is where my picture of him as Pennsylvanian first, Democrat second, which is the title of one of the chapters, really comes out. Uh, he is committed to Pennsylvania's interest. He sees the know-nothings as being a good vehicle for forwarding those. When the know-nothings moment in the sun sort of ends, he then jumps to the Republican Party because, again, he sees the Republicans, which are explicitly an anti-slavery uh, party and, to a certain extent, a protectionist party as being uh, a vehicle for forwarding Pennsylvania's interests and his own ambitions. Was he taking those positions on slavery uh, as a principle or pragmatically because he thought it sold better to Pennsylvania voters? I don't think, I think that those are politically, uh, I'm sorry, I think that those are actual expressions of principle. Cameron is a conservative on it, and I can't say that enough. He does not want to touch slavery in South Carolina, in Florida, even though he personally opposes it. But, you know, in various times in his letters, he talks about how abolitionism is not popular in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvanians don't like black people, etc. Um, African Americans are stripped of the vote um, during one of the constitutional revisions, I think it's the one in 1837. So there's no black constituency that he's appealing to. There's no, there's a very small abolitionist, abolitionist constituency. These are not the constituencies that are going to win elections. So saying these sorts of things is not winning him any friends or any votes. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's a matter of principle for him. Now, to be fair, he's not walking around, you know, proclaiming racial equality. He's not, you know, walking around saying, well, I, I really hate slavery. Um, I, I'm just held back by the Constitution. He does sort of soft-pedal those when necessary, but he is very, very consistent throughout his life. He did lose his Senate seat after, was it one term? Yeah, so he loses in 1849. Uh, he serves out the last four years of Buchanan's term, but um, because of Polk's unpopularity, the Whigs sweep the 1848 mid, uh, elections. Um, you know, Pennsylvania goes for Zachary Taylor, 
and the number of Whigs in the legislature becomes a majority. So it's totally unlikely that they're going to return a Democrat to the Senate, even a Democrat who has given Polk as hard a time as Cameron. And so he ends up losing his seat uh, in 1849. He returns to Pennsylvania, but almost immediately begins scheming for a return to uh, the Senate. He runs again in 1855. That doesn't go well. He runs afoul of Andrew Curtin, who ends up wanting to be uh, the senator. But in 1857, he ends up being returned to the Senate. Yeah, you talk about it in 1856, after he lost the election, he was accused of bribes yes. to, to try to get votes, and there was an investigation into it. Yeah, so there was a, an investigation into it. And this, of course, is one of those great examples that people trot out of Cameron's corruption. But if you actually look at the investigation for corruption, you can see it's a thoroughly partisan affair, that it's much more about smearing someone who represents a threat to one faction of the Republican Party and a threat to Pennsylvania's Democratic Party than it does about actually getting to the truth. And so in a lot of ways, Cameron is ultimately able to, quote unquote, beat the rap um, for this. But again, it just feeds into that general narrative of him as corrupt. Um, you know, when, when you read about Cameron, inevitably someone brings up this Thaddeus Stevens story. That, uh, shortly after Lincoln's election, uh, he meets with Thaddeus Stevens, and who's a Pennsylvania congressman, incredibly well-known in the Senate, or in the uh, House of Representatives, and he says to Stevens, well, what do you think about Cameron? And Stevens says to Lincoln, well, I don't think he'd steal a red-hot stove. And of course, Lincoln loved a good joke, so he thought this was hilarious. And Lincoln, uh, having no tact, mentions this to Cameron. And Cameron, you know, goes and, and buttonholes Stevens and says, what are you doing? What the hell? And uh, he says, you got to go take that back. So Stevens calls on the president and says, I believe in our last conversation, I told you Cameron wouldn't steal a red hot stove. I take that back. And of course, that just delights Lincoln even more. Uh, and, you know, it just, it, Cameron had a very difficult relationship with Lincoln. Um, and I think Lincoln enjoyed giving Cameron a hard time because he felt sort of uh, sacked with him. Um, but it feeds into that reputation for corruption. You know, there really was no reason to believe that, Le that Cameron would steal a, red a stove, red hot or otherwise. But again, that was his reputation. Uh, 1856, the year that, um, that Cameron lost the Senate race was the year James Buchanan was elected president. Yes. And how did Simon Cameron take that? They were foes by that time. They right? were foes at that point, and he is a bitter foe. And he sees um, every opportunity. He takes every opportunity to to work against the president's agenda. If he was so pro Pennsylvania, why did he not want a Pennsylvanian to be president? Well, that's a good question. Um, Buchanan, you know, was the only president from Pennsylvania, but in a lot of ways, he didn't behave like the president from Pennsylvania. By the 1850s, anyone who wanted to be president of the United States, any Democrat who wanted to be president of the United States, had to make really explicit promises to uh, southern states on the issue of slavery. And by 1856, that involved the Fugitive Slave Law. The Fugitive Slave Law was this really sweeping piece of federal legislation that mandated state authorities had to help recapture escaped slaves. Pennsylvania, sitting directly above Virginia, of course, becomes you know, a focal point for escaping slaves. Most Pennsylvanians see this as an affront to Pennsylvania's state's rights, saying, we don't have slavery. Why are you involving us in this? You want to have slavery? Great. You're just going to have to deal with escaped slaves on your own. In order to be president, Buchanan had to get behind the Fugitive Slave Law, and so he was seen as selling out 
Pennsylvania's interests. In addition, you know, Buchanan sort of takes a very vague position on the tariff, not wanting to alienate Southerners who were opposed to the tariff. So by the time he's elected president, he has in many ways abandoned the crucial tenets of what Cameron sees as Pennsylvania's interests. He may be the president from Pennsylvania, but he's not the president for Pennsylvania in Cameron's mind. When did Cameron go back to the Senate? So he gets reelected to the Senate in 1857 and serves until he becomes Secretary of War in 1861. And then he's out of the Senate until 1867, and he serves until 1877. So in 1857, he was elected to the Senate. That was the, uh, the rise of sectional tension. Well, sectional tension had been rising really since the Polk administration. Uh, the war with Mexico, in a lot of ways, forces the issue of slavery front and center. And then the admission of California just exacerbates those tensions. And so as a result, by the time we get to the 1850s, slavery, for everyone's attempts to talk about something else, has become the dominant national issue. And so Cameron is, of course, still agitating on the issue of the tariff, constantly trying to get it increased. But in his time in the Senate, he's also got to talk about these issues of slavery. And he consistently says, look, I personally oppose slavery. And the state that I represent is free. You've got to respect that, and we'll respect South Carolina's right to be slave, Florida's right to be slave, but this fugitive slave law is totally absurd. It is an infringement on our state's rights. Um, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a very different atmosphere that he returns to in 1857 than the one he left in 1849. Is he seen by either side as being with them or against them? Does the southern states see him as an enemy, or the northern states see him, or the abolitionists see him as an enemy? I think the southern state politicians see him as a friend, but not as a supporter. So they'll eat dinner with him, but they know that he's going to vote against them. You know, he's not supporting federal efforts to recapture escaped slaves, because he sees that as an affront to Pennsylvania's interests. And he's agitating for increasing the tariff, which is seen as an, uh, as a, an attack upon southern states' interests. They want a low tariff. I want to uh, read you, in, in 1860, he goes for the Republican presidential nomination, and you write that his platform was maintaining the right of petition, the abolition of flogging in the Navy, a system of cheap postage, and raising the tariff. And uh, nothing about slavery in there. Well, the right of petition is actually an issue of slavery. Mm -hmm. So Congress had at various times imposed a gag rule by which they meant they were just not going to discuss any issues of slavery. Um, and it was sort of a, a way of, of lessening sectional tension. By coming out for the right of petition, what he's arguing for is essentially, let's have this debate. We should, people, even if we're not going to listen to them, even if we're not going to take any action on them, have the right to petition their government for uh, uh, issues of slavery. And so he's sort of tipping his hat to abolitionist organizations for whom the, 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 the gag rule was really a slap at their First Amendment rights. So on the one hand, yeah, there's nothing explicitly about slavery there, but there's a lot implicitly about slavery in there. The abolition of flogging in the Navy. Yeah, I, I don't know why that rose to the level of national issue. And you say a few weeks before the convention, the Republican convention in 1860, a rumor began circulating to the effect that Cameron was engaged in some sort of sort of political skullduggery with Pennsylvania's Democrats. Yes. Again, the charge of yes. skull, well, skullduggery. Skullduggery. you got to love that word. Um, you should buy the book just for that word. <laughs> um, well, see, but see, this is the other interesting thing about Cameron. Cameron, in his first run to the Senate, gets elected by building a big tent coalition that includes both Democrats 
and Whigs. He builds this coalition of people who don't necessarily agree on a whole lot of issues, but find enough common ground that they're willing to send Cameron to the Senate to represent them. So it's Whigs, it's Democrats, and it's some know-nothings. Um, he's attempt, he's being accused of attempting to do the same thing in 1857. Cameron was in many ways the original work-across-the-aisle politician. If there was a Democrat he could work with, great. If there was a Whig he could work with, fantastic. If there was a know-nothing he could work with, he would work with anyone. Um, and so I think the party purists made those accusations as a way of saying, see, he's not really a Democrat or he's not really a Republican. He's willing to work with these other people. We have the same kinds of charges being made about congressmen today, although they're far more partisan and they're far less willing to reach across the aisle. In that sense, it's actually one of Cameron's more admirable qualities that he was willing to work with Whigs and know-nothings and Republicans and Democrats. Again, for his own personal gain, but also to forward the interests of Pennsylvania. What number of book is this for you? So this is book number five, and uh, book number six deals with U.S. Grant's presidency and grows out of this book. Uh, when I was writing it, I was disappointed to find that no one had written a beginning-to-end history of U.S. Grant's presidency, um, which covers the last ten years that uh, Cameron's in the Senate, and I thought, well, I guess, someone else, I guess that someone is me. You've been on this program three times before. I have. What were those books? So the first book was Eastern State Penitentiary History, uh, my narrative history of Philadelphia's infamous uh, Eastern State Penitentiary. The second time was for my book about the Homestead Strike out in Pittsburgh. And the third was just a few months ago for the bank war. Uh, Andrew Jackson, Nicholas Biddle, and the fight for American finance. Do you, can you write two books at the same time? Yes. Because your, your bank book and this one came out about... Well, this book was together. actually written before the bank war. So the, I did this book beginning in the spring of 2014, and it was finished that December. And then I began the bank war. Um, because this one came out with an academic press, it took a little bit longer for them to put ink on paper uh, than my bank war book. But you can work on two books at the same time? I can. How do you do that? I have superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of my books, you know, a lot of my books deal with similar issues. So the Bank War book also grew directly out of this, trying to better understand this critical moment in the Jacksonians' rise to power. Um, the Grant book grows out of the research that I did for this book. So there are a lot of continuities um, between books. And of course, they all deal with Pennsylvania's history. So uh, Simon Cameron runs for president in 1860, doesn't make it because Abraham Lincoln right. gets the nomination. So uh, what, what kind of relationship did Simon Cameron have with Abraham Lincoln? So, so Lincoln, or excuse me, so Cameron becomes a good party man and falls in line behind Lincoln. Um, he, Cameron's supporters in Chicago extract a number of concessions from the Lincoln people, including that if, if Cameron gives Lincoln his delegates at the convention and campaigns for him, then Lincoln will name uh, Cameron to the cabinet. So Lincoln's friends at Chicago make that bargain. Uh, Lincoln ends up choking on that a little bit once he gets elected. And he tries very quickly to distance himself from that, in large part because the factions of Pennsylvania's Republican Party that opposed Cameron starts just deluge Lincoln with these letters about all these vague sort of things about corruption. And that's another thing about Cameron and corruption. The charges are always vague. It's always, well, I heard it from a friend who said he heard it from his cousin twice removed, etc. And so Lincoln backpedals and, you know, to his discredit, tries to pull back on an offer of a cabinet position. And Cameron mobilizes his followers to lean on Lincoln and basically say, 
if you don't do this, we will make your life very difficult in the White House. And so Lincoln ultimately gives Cameron the War Department, which historians have generally argued demonstrates that Lincoln didn't actually believe that the war was coming. But in reality, Cameron said to him, there is a war coming. The War Department's going to be at the forefront. Um, you need to choose carefully who you put in that position. You know, if Cameron was solely interested in patronage, he would have wanted to be Postmaster General. That would have been a fantastic place for Lincoln to park him if he sort of had Cameron as a millstone around his neck. Because the Postmaster Generalship had all of the best patronage in the United States and had very little to do with the war effort. The fact that Cameron offers the fact that Lincoln offers Cameron the War Department suggests that Lincoln valued Cameron's advice when it came to military matters. Cameron had served briefly as Adjutant General of the State of Pennsylvania. Um, he had, you know, really, you know, for a cabinet that had very little military experience, he probably had the most military experience uh, in the cabinet. And so the fact that Lincoln puts him there is not an indication that Lincoln doesn't think the war is coming. The fact that Lincoln puts him there is an indication that he values Cameron's uh, expertise and advice. Why would Cameron want to be Secretary of War with the Civil War? He didn't broaching. actually want to be Secretary of War. He really wanted to be Secretary of the Treasury. That's where he thought his, t his talents would be best used. And it took some arm twisting for Lincoln to get him to accept the War Department. Um, they meet shortly before Lincoln's inaugural. Uh, he says to Cameron, I'll give you the War Department, and Cameron speaks very, very sharply to Lincoln. We don't know exactly what was said, but Cameron ends up storming out of Lincoln's suite, which is unusual behavior for Cameron. Cameron was very soft-spoken. There are only a couple of instances where he sort of gets, raises his voice. But he ends up thinking about it, talking to some of his friends, and comes back later in the day and says, all right, I'll take the War Department. Um, but again, there's very comparatively little patronage. There's comparatively little in the War Department for a guy who's strictly interested in what he can get out of it. It's much more, I think, about public service. It's interesting you write about him. He had a lifelong distaste for professional military officers, mm -hmm. and he was extremely supportive of the volunteers, but he was suspicious of professional soldiers who he believed were essentially living on government handouts. Yes, and you know this is sort of like old-school republicanism. Cameron thought you should pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just as he had done. You know, as sort of a sop to Cameron's efforts in Pennsylvania, Andrew Jackson had named him an inspector of West Point, um, which essentially meant, you know, he was on the board of trustees. And it was from that moment that Cameron had a firsthand understanding of what went on at the school. And during the Mexican-American War, he goes out of his way to support the people who volunteer for the military. He gives them, you know, gifts, he gives them swords, he works to get them pensions. But the professional military class, he leaves a very bad taste in his mouth. And that only gets worse when he becomes Secretary of War, and so many of them resign to join the Confederacy. At one point, he complains that there must be some radical defect in the education at West Point, that we had all of these traitors in our midst for all of these years, that at the first sign of trouble, they go join the, the Confederacy. And it sort of reinforces his antipathy toward professional soldiers. What was his role with the Civil War as Secretary of War? So he's right there in the thick of it. I mean, he, you know, the War Department is minuscule when the war breaks out. There's something like 16,000 troops. Most of them are in the West. Uh, the War Department itself has only about four dozen people working for it. And, you know, about half of them resign to go join the Confederacy. It's divided up into this incredibly creaky bureaucracy, each part headed by these incredibly old professional soldiers. And so Cameron is simultaneously trying to reform the War Department 
and mobilize 75,000 volunteers and get them ready to fight. And so during his first year, the war goes incredibly poorly for the administration. Again, evidence that historians have used for proof that Cameron was just more interested in doling out spoils than he was in fighting the war. But I argue in the book that no one could have done a better job. Cameron is not an administrator. He is an awful administrator. But the challenges that he faced and the tools at his disposal were simply unequal to the challenges. And so as a result, when he leaves, he had done really, I think, the best that he could have done with his own personal limitations and with the limitations imposed on him by Congress, by the administration, and by the overwhelming challenges he faced. You're right. Uh, Lincoln often ignored the chain of command, tacitly encouraging subordinates to do the same, taking their cues from the president. Some of the Cameron's, Cameron's cabinet colleagues felt entitled to intrude on the War Department matters. Because you always hear about Abraham Lincoln selecting generals and sending them instructions. Was that stepping on Cameron's? Responsibilities? Well, yeah, so, you know, the flip side of, of uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's team of rivals is the fact that those rivals didn't check their rivalry when they came into the cabinet. Everybody, you know, Sam and Chase, who's Secretary of the Treasury, and Seward, who's Secretary of State, both thought they could do a better job as president. And so one of the things that Seward does very early in the administration is try to build a wall between the other cabinet members and the president. He sees himself as Lincoln's prime minister. So Lincoln, this, you know, baboon from the backwoods, can't really be, you know, run these things. I, Seward, as Secretary of State, will take on the entire portfolio of the government and be the power behind the throne. And, you know, as a result, he's interfering with government, you know, he's interfering with the War Department, with the Navy Department. There's one particularly egregious incident where his behavior, you know, nearly uh, torpedoes the resupply of Sumter. Um, so it's a major, major problem. And even when he's sort of brought to heel, Lincoln himself is still having meetings with generals, is still having meetings with subordinates, with congressmen, that he's not necessarily upfront with Cameron about. And so as a result, you know, there's a lot of administration interference in the War Department's strategy, in the War Department's execution. The administration doesn't give Cameron the tools he needs to succeed. And, you know, as a result, you add to that his own administrative ineptitude, and what you get is a really, really bloody first year for the war, for the administration. When you were writing this book, did you come across any other historians who said, oh, why are you writing about him? He's a crook. You know, you're, <laughs> you're full of beans about it. He was a crook from start to finish. Well, you know, it's funny because I opened the book with some of the quotes from both his contemporaries and from other historians who have sort of written Cameron off as, you know, corrupt as a dunghill and, you know, not worth studying. You know, about the best that we can get is Russell Wigley, who wrote a book about Montgomery C. Meigs, um, who was quartermaster general, who said, well, Cameron's reputation is probably worse than the reality actually was. It's the most backhanded of backhanded praise. Um, but, you know, look, on the one hand, Cameron was not the shining star at the War Department that he needed to be. On the other hand, when he leaves the War Department, it's better organized, it's more efficient, the troops are better clothed, shod, and equipped than they were a year before. And he really lays the groundwork for um, the successes that the, war, that the Union begins having 
in the later part of 1862. He also predicts correctly, this is going to become a war against slavery. We need to be on the right side of this, and we should immediately begin enlisting escaped slaves. And that you know, puts him in a place of moral leadership that the Lincoln administration doesn't come around to until 1863. And in a lot of ways, you know, I think builds his reputation later on. And that's something that historians who have sort of beaten up on him have never given him credit for. The fact that he very early on understands what kind of war this is going to be and recognizes that it is going to become a war against slavery and the Union government needs to be on the right side of that. Now you do write that the war secretary, Cameron, relied heavily for procurement on Alexander Cummings, a prominent Philadelphia editor who founded the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was totally unqualified for the job. At one point, he spent $21,000 for, among other things, straw hats and linen pantaloons. He overpaid for shoes, and he used government funds to buy alcohol, herring, and pickles. <laughs> Does this uh, Cummings uh, cause Cameron... Uh, more problems than he was worth? Oh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, we live in an era when there is a very, very clearly laid out federal bureaucracy for procurement. No such thing existed. And so when Cameron had to equip, arm, and feed 75,000 volunteers, he fell back on the strategies that had worked for him in the past, which was relying on people that he knew. Cummings was a good friend and a political supporter. So he fell back on that strategy of relying on these people, delegating responsibilities and saying, okay, you go do this. Cummings was an absolute disaster, but his friends from the, uh, uh, from the Pennsylvania Railroad turned out to be quite good at procurement, quite good at arranging transportation, quite good at protecting the nation's infrastructure. And it's also important to recognize that he was not by far the only one who put federal government funds into the wrong hands. Seward does some of this. Chase does some of this. You know, so there is a great deal of poor decision-making on the president's part and on other cabinet secretaries' parts that sort of fades into the background of their reputations, whereas Cameron's is front and center. Was he fired by Lincoln as Secretary of War? Depends on who you ask. Uh, Lincoln accepted a resignation that Cameron never submitted. And, you know, depending upon, you know, we have really good sources from Lincoln's cabinet um, who tell different stories about what happened. Um, you know, some say he resigned, some say he was fired. Cameron's own letters to his former cabinet colleagues tell a story that he resigned. And these, these are letters to Chase, these are letters to Seward, these are people who would have known the actual story. Um, so there's very little effort to save face. There's no reason to lie to someone who knows the actual story about why you left. Um, I argue in the book that, you know, Lincoln wanted him gone because of this issue of slavery, had made that abundantly clear, and ultimately accepted a letter of resignation that Cameron never tendered, and then allowed Cameron, as a face-saving gesture, to tender a resignation. So in effect, he was fired. But he was not fired for corruption, and that's incredibly important. He was not fired for administrative ineptitude. He was fired for taking the lead on the enlistment of African Americans, which the president rightly saw as his prerogative. I wish we had time to talk about all the things about <laughs> Simon Cameron, but I want to jump ahead. After he left the War Department, he did run for Senate again a couple of years later, and you, you write that Pennsylvania's, this is during his campaign for Senate, Pennsylvania's Democrats 
sent a trainload of armed thugs from Philadelphia and had them loiter menacingly around the Pennsylvania Capitol. The message was clear. A Democrat who voted for Simon Cameron could expect to have an accident on his way out of the legislature. Yes. And that was how politics was done. I mean, anyone who's interested in violence in Pennsylvania politics need only look up the buckshot war. You know, it was not unusual for campaigns to put well-armed thugs on the streets as a disincentive for to voting for someone they didn't want you to vote for. But you do uh, say that uh, he was charged with having bribed, tried to bribe senators to vote for him, and there was an investigation, and the, was it the U.S. House censured him? Yeah, so the U.S. House censures him, but that's for his behavior as Secretary of mm. War. Um, and that's his political enemies again. You know, they come out and end up censuring him. And to Lincoln's credit, uh, it takes him about three weeks, but the president actually comes to Cameron's defense saying that if there were mistakes, that they were his, the president's, and that Cameron, you know, as Secretary of War, did as well as he possibly could. It was a tepid, you know, sort of response, but it nonetheless absolved Cameron of any sort of wrong intent. Cameron was in the U.S. Senate during the Andrew Johnson impeachment? He was. He how gets did, elected. How did he vote? Well, I will tell you that when he ran for Senate, he said that he would be the first to vote for Johnson's impeachment. And he did. Why? Um, he saw Johnson as losing the peace in a lot of ways. He saw the war as having, you know, won all of these incredibly important changes that Johnson as president was giving away. And so he wanted him out. I have to... Jump ahead here because we only have a couple of minutes left. And uh, he, he lived to a ripe old age and got his son yes. in the Senate seat. Yeah, so one of his sons becomes the leading, uh, ends up taking over Cameron's seat in the Senate. Uh, Cameron lives to be age uh, 90. He ends up dying at 90. Um, and, you know, even after he leaves the Senate in 1877, he's sort of the sage of Donegal, uh, which was his country estate. So he's called upon by presidents, by congressmen. Um, by governors to hear what he has to say. And, you know, well into his late 80s, he's still drinking a quarter champagne. He's riding horses. He's going for five-mile walks. He was incredibly spry. I want to read you this. At the age of 88, Cameron took two extended trips, the first to Bermuda and the second to Europe. Astonishingly, following his trip to Bermuda in February, the octogenarian Cameron complained, life is altogether too slow in the Bermudas to suit me. This is at age 88. It is, and that's, you know, Cameron to a T. And, you know, I just want to toss this out there for anyone who's interested. There's an entire chapter about a sex scandal in which he's involved in his late 70s. So this was a man who, you know, was not sitting on his porch doddering. He was out there doing things. What would he have been like to be around? He would have been incredibly charming, soft-spoken, generous. Um, you know, he would have had good food, good wine, and he would have told great stories. Uh, he was he was a partier. He enjoyed people. He enjoyed a good party, and he had known everybody of influence and power in 19th century America. So it would have been incredible. And of all the people I've ever written about, he is the only one I wish I could get in a time machine and go back and meet. What would you ask him? Oh, I don't even know where I'd start. Uh, you know, I just I think I would just sit there and let him unspool. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Paul Cahan. He is the author of this book, Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.